Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit For the Culture Podcast, we are your host Janine Wilson and Jean Wilson the Fourth, and welcome to the show. <laughs> all right, and while you're here, please like, follow, subscribe, rate, leave a comment. All of that stuff helps us out tremendously. Yes. If you are new here, welcome, and if you're returning, thanks so much for joining us again. Yes, and tell your friends, your enemies, your neighbors, your schoolmates, your class reunion friends. Tell everybody. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's just get right into it. You All know, right. I'm gonna ask, what have you been listening to? Um, well, what I'm gonna do this time, I'm gonna use my give it a listen for what I've been listening to because I've been listening to it a lot. But um, my give it a listen is "Free Your Dreams" from um, Shantae Khan oh, with Snarky Puppy home. with Michael playing on there. So I'm gonna go with that. I've been listening to it, and um, I'm gonna use that as my give it a listen. So give it a listen. <laughs> it's Free Your Dreams by Shantae Khan, Snarky Puppy. It's a jam. We love Shantae. <laughs> All right. That's what's but up. you've been listening to. I don't even to. think I've heard it, so I'm definitely going to get it. Because I was playing it the other day when I was washing the dishes. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to re-listen yeah. to yeah, it because yeah, I don't yeah. recall. <clears throat> All right. So I have been listening to, thanks to instagram mm. um so i saw this reel and i'm i'm not even gonna lie you know i'm usually up on a lot of things like mm. a lot of musical history trivia like all that stuff so i feel like i feel bad that i didn't know this but i came across a reel on instagram mm-hmm. and i'm an 80s baby the best christmas i ever had in my <laughs> life was the christmas of 1987 oh, wow. when i got my nes Oh, okay. okay. I know where you're going. So a big bulk of my childhood was spent with Mario and them, the whole crew, right? <laughs> Mario so, and his brother. Yeah. Well, Luigi, Princess, you know, everybody, <laughs> Yoshi, crew. told the okay. whole crew, right? So I came across the reel, and it was saying where all of the music from Super Mario Brothers was inspired from. Ah. So the Japanese composer, Koji Kondo, he was inspired a lot by jazz. He was a jazz head. You know, mm-hmm. of course, he's over in Japan, Tokyo. They love jazz. They and that kind of ties into what we're going to talk about with our on-base bases, right? Okay, all right. So, okay, so the underworld theme of Super Mario Brothers, like the coldest theme of the whole game, right? Mm-hmm. It was inspired by a song off of Lee Rittner's Friendship album. And the name of the song is Let's Not Talk About It. Let's not talk about it. Not only is the song super cold, but Abe is absolutely demolishing (laughs) the bass line. He is doing... Laborio? Yes. He is like doing so much with that bass line on that song. So I've been hooked. I've been listening to it so much. And then it makes me like really sad that I did whatever with my super nes because i really just want to play mario brothers not the new like <laughs> digital version of it. i want my cart my um what, passive no what was the thing called the cartridge, the cartridge. and i want to like blow on it and then put it you in. want your analog version yes <laughs> yeah so that's what i've been on okay okay yeah i remember us listening to it you went through um, all the different stages, too, didn't you? Yeah, like all of the songs. Well, yeah. a lot of the songs from the world. Okay. But, yeah, that all was, right, that was cool to find out. To. All right. But, yeah, all so right. that's what I've been on. Um, before we go any further, I just want to do a shout-out to all the working bass players. And I'm not talking about, like, the working bass mm-hmm. players as in, to, as in the full-time bass players that are on yeah. tour and playing with everybody. That's great. And us working guys wish we could do what you're doing and women 
and women. I mean, I mean guys as I mean guys as a group. All of us, all of us bases. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I just wanted to say, you know, I just wanted to give a shout out to the working base players, our nine to fives, and if you like me, ten hours, six days. You know, we try to find and make, or we try to make and find, however you want to put it, you know, time to, to hone our craft and learn our music and stuff. So I just want to put a shout out for encouragement for bassists like us. Yeah, and that's a thing. And um, I'm always interested to hear, like, musicians that have nine to five jobs. Like, when do you find time to practice? When do you find time to shed? Because usually, like for me, it's either going to have to be like early morning right, or right. after work. So you either getting up super early or you're staying up late. late you know, or you waiting all week till <laughs> Saturday when you get off of work. I mean, <laughs> you know, you just have to yeah. make, you know, make it work for you. But um, the fact that, you know, we don't have all day to sit right. and shed and, and work and, and it's like, I have so much respect for a working nine to five, nine to you five, know, regular yeah. W2 job musician who then has to, you know, basically do a whole nother job. So, yeah, shout out to all of us. Yeah. I'll be feeling like we fall behind because we don't get a chance oh, to, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I'll be needing our encouragement sometimes. Yeah. So, all right. So where we, where we go next? Who's on base? Yeah, of course. We about to get into our own right, well, Who's on base? What we got? What's well, I'm going to tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell what you. What we got? <laughs> All right, so this bass player, um, I'm super excited to talk about him, and here I go with my excited again, but I just be excited, y'all, okay? <laughs> All right, so um, today we just going to get right into him, and it is none other than the funk legend, Mr. Paul, Paul Jackson, Jackson on bass. bass. All right, so Paul Jerome Jackson. Okay. Okay, that's never, his 30 name, Jerome. People don't really name their kids Jerome no more. Well, you don't really hear that. Martin no ruined that. Oh, <laughs> Jerome in the house. <laughs> yeah, but <Ready> Paul. <laughs> and right. And he was a junior, so he was Paul <laughs> Jerome Jackson Jr. And he was born in Oakland, California in 1947. Okay. He was the youngest of four children of Paul Sr. and Rosa Jackson. Okay. And okay, so both of his grandmothers, and this is really interesting, mm. both of his grandmothers were Pentecostal Sunday school teachers. Mm. Okay. But they both played guitar in church. Ah. And his mother also played piano. Okay. And I was reading an interview that he did in the um guy who was interviewing him, he was like, So how did you get your start in music? And Paul was like, Well, you know, I grew up in church. My grandmothers and my mom, they were all, you know, Sunday school teachers and preachers in the Pentecostal church, mm. came up with a strict Christian background. And the interviewer was like, no, how did you get your musical start? And he was like, that's how I got my musical start. Because, you know, for a lot of black kids, like we always talk about, your first exposure to music is in the church, church yeah. you know. So um, his father, Paul Sr., he was a heavyweight boxer, right? Mm-hmm. But he also worked security at, like, different uh, music venues in the okay, Bay Area. Like a bouncer. Well, yeah, yeah. we kind of say that, but, I mean, yeah. yeah. All right, but, like, at different music venues, so not necessarily a bouncer, but he did security. Okay. Um, but his father was also a stride piano player, so he played, like, a lot of bebop and stuff, right? Oh, okay. So his father would have him come and practice with him for at least 30 minutes a day. That was the thing. Like, he had to practice with his dad. <laughs> so the thing he said about his father, and I'm going to get into the different instruments that Paul Jr. played, right? Okay. All right, so the thing about his father was he was like, his father wasn't like a master musician. Like, he said he didn't exactly have his chords right, but he said his dad had a mean left hand. <laughs> and that's where he picked up a lot about bass chords and, and notes okay. from watching his dad, right? Because when you think about, like, bebop piano, you think it's, it, like, they killing the, the bass yeah, notes. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. All right, so his dad was, like, well-known. He knew everybody, like, in the Bay Area music scene, mm -hmm. and he knew a lot of different artists because of the bands that would come through. He was doing security and stuff like that. So he said it was common for, like, James Brown to be at his house. Wow. It was, you know, common for, like, 
JJ Johnson and just like musicians of the time to just casually show up to their house. Wow. So he got to see, he was exposed to a lot of, you know, different things behind the scenes mm. at a very young age. So he began playing bass at the age of nine. Okay. And he was considered by his teachers to be a musical prodigy. Like he just picked up on things very easily. And um, he's left handed, but he plays all of his instruments. Right handed. Okay, that's different. Yeah, and he said like when he first got an electric bass, he was like he wasn't about to play left hand upside down. He wanted to play okay. like the correct way. He didn't want a left hand bass. Okay, okay. So um, he played other instruments. He played piano. He played um, tuba, and he he even played bassoon. And we okay. gonna get into how the bassoon came oh, about. Wow. Okay, but all right. So he started really playing bass in the clubs when he was twelve. And his father said that the only way that he could do it is if he kept his grades up. Ah, uh, okay. So I like that he <clears> threw <throat> that little caveat in it because okay. he's like, you know, music not about to be your end all be all. Right, you right, know, right. You still right. got to get your education, even though they knew how great, even then, of a musician that he was, right? So he was like, he worked, Paul said that he worked extra hard to keep his grades up because he really just wanted to do music. Okay. And his dad was such a great dad. Like, he was so dedicated to his son. And he, you know, he had other siblings, so I'm sure it was equally spread, but... Was he the only one that played an instrument? Um, I think he has some siblings that play instruments. I didn't dive too oh, okay. deep into that. Okay. But his dad didn't want him riding the bus with his upright. So he took him to, like, all his gigs, okay. dropped him off, and picked him back up. So he started on upright? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and I know I'm kind of going backwards, but I'm going to paint the picture of to how he got to start playing upright, which is a okay. very interesting story. Like, okay. All right. So, <laughs> all right. When um he was 14, his father kind of snuck him into the venue that he was doing security at, and Miles Davis was there playing the show. All right. So, it was Miles, it was John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, mm. J.J. Johnson, and Paul Chambers was on Upright, wow. okay? So when he saw the bass that uh, Paul Chambers was playing, he said it was a beautiful bass. It had like a little wooden cherub sitting on top. And he was like, when he saw that bass and he saw Paul Chambers play, he was like, he knew that was it. He, wow. he wanted to be a bass player. Wow. He ain't never, you know... He he was like, that was just it. I just had to play bass. He knew that's what he wanted. <laughs> so the band teacher gave him like a little half size, three quarter bass, right? Uh, All right. So this is where it gets kind of awkward. But he told this story numerous times. So I figure that this part of the story was important to him. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> he said that, you know, the band teacher showed him how to play the bass. And he was like... You know, because upright, you got to hold it right, between you gotta, your legs. Right. And then he was like, you know, his his teacher was teaching him, like, how the different positions, how to play the strings correctly and everything, right? So he was like, um, he took the bass home with him every night, and he practiced. But the thing that he enjoyed about bass, which to me was a wild reason to want to play bass and to fall in love with the instrument, okay? Uh-oh. He was like... You know, he like an adolescent boy. And this is an awkward part of the story, but I feel like it's an important piece because he said it a lot of times. Okay. All right, so he was like, um, when you play the upright and, you know, you pluck like your E string, it sends a vibration through the instrument. So it was, a, the best way I could put it, it was a sensation that he enjoyed very much as a young boy playing this instrument. And that's the best like way that I can say it. Oh, wow. So he said that it felt very good to play bass. And he was like, it was over. He instantly fell in love <laughs> with the bass for more than just one reason. Oh, wow. I'm just leaving it there. Okay. Yeah. So and it's funny because you, you, that story you tell, I think I've, out of all the stuff I've heard him play bass on, I've ne I don't think I've ever heard him play upright. Yeah, because by the time we got hit to Paul, he was strictly electric. Uh, okay, okay, okay. And um, really the only people who really got to see him play upright were the people who were in the Bay Area at the time that he was playing, playing. clubs. Okay, okay. And so he wow. um, 
he started playing with a Latin band at 14. It was like a local Bay Area band. Okay. And he credited playing Latin music as what really helped him get his timing together. Mm. And, um, you know, he learned a lot about Latin rhythms and, and stuff like that. And he was like, during that time, he played like a lot of Mexican weddings. And he was like, he was just really making money that way. But he was like, that really, um, you know, gave him an idea about time. Okay. All right. So um, he was playing. He and he was like playing upright at this time still. So this is not even electric. Okay. Okay. So by fourteen, he was playing with Al Tanner, and Al Tanner was a saxophonist from the Bay Area, and he learned a lot during this period that he was playing with Al Al Tanner. I always want to say Al Tanner. Al Tanner, and he said that Al would teach him a song that they were, you know, going to be playing. But he would also teach it not only the notes that he needed to play, but he would also teach him theory, you know. So he would teach him why certain bass notes was related to a certain chord, depending on how it was voiced or whatever. Okay. Um. So he learned a lot of like theory, like he had band classes and stuff. But, you know, in high school, they only teaching you basics. Right, right. So this was he, a saxophone player yeah, he was learning. This from? Yeah. Okay. So he really got a lot of theory from just playing with different musicians. Okay. And um, in his teens. He was playing with McCoy Tyner. Oh, and he wow. was like, McCoy is like one of the few like artists that That's really. That's my uncle's favorite. Yeah. That got to see him play upright a lot. Wow. And he was 16 years old just playing in dive bars in the Bay Area. Wow. Playing with great musicians and didn't even know it. Yeah. Like at that time, they didn't even know like how great they were. And, you know, they were the musicians of the day, but they didn't know. I'm sure they didn't know that they were going to become legends. When you said um, he saw Paul Chambers upright, it reminded me uh, when I seen Buster Williams upright at the jazz festival downtown. Oh, yeah. That might have been the first time I've seen like an upright in person. And I and, and I know what I saw, so I can imagine what, what Paul saw. When I seen Buster Williams on stage with that upright, it was just the wood and the sun was just glistening. <laughs> it was like the most beautiful piece of playable tree oh, that I've ever seen in my life. I love that playable tree. <laughs> so I can imagine what Paul's, you know, when he seen Paul Chambers on the upright with Miles, Man. I can imagine what it, you know, what you say he seen on the top little. He had a little cherub. Man. Whittled at the top of the his the upright, so I can imagine the impact that it had on his life. Yeah, that's sweet. That's cool. I couldn't even like being a teenager and just being in the the great like the presence of all these great musicians and the fact that you even appreciate it. You yeah. know, yeah. I mean, because I think about kids today. Unless you you were raised right with parents right. who exposed you to good music, you could yeah. stick twenty kids in a jazz concert and probably. A good 14 out of them 20 either going to be sleep or on their phones. On their phone or somebody trying to uh, rap bars to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, but that was, and, and, and um, I even appreciate the fact that at a young age, he even remember the great artists that he, you know, was around. Because it made me think, like, how many times us might have been in a situation at a place or walking by jazz that somebody great was playing, but we didn't know who they were and. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that's cool. That's cool. All right, what you got? And then, hold on. Mm -hmm. Even as a teenager, guess who else he played with? Who? Pharrell Sanders. Oh, wow. And Bob King. Oh, And he wow. played with them as a trio as a teenager. That's crazy. You were a kid playing with Pharrell Sanders. So what does that say about you as a musician? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like, I just, I love stories like this, like yeah. for real. And then, um, and I, I'm, I'm going to digress a little bit because we're talking about him in his <laughs> teenage years. Um, you know, there's been a lot of debate online about the state of music today and, you know, um, there's no good music. And like, I'll always say it's out there if you seek it. Yeah. Of course, it's not being pushed. It's not the no, agenda. Because they pushing with sales. Right. So. Not even now that they push what they want to push. Yeah, Don't get me yeah, into that. Yeah. But because um, that we'll be here for two hours. Um, but yeah, it's there if you seek it out. But you know, our kids aren't just naturally being exposed. This good music is not on TikTok. Right. Good music is not on Instagram. Good, well, it is, but not in their algorithm. Right, you know what right, I'm saying? Right, right, right. So it's like, um, 
you kind of wonder like, are these kids going to be okay? Is music going to be okay? But then you see all these amazing kids that are still musicians. musicians. Like They're aliens. playing music. Yeah. They're into music. They know good music. Yeah. So I really feel like the kids going to be all right. You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes it yeah. could get a little murky. You just never well, know. I mean, we know for sure all the young bass players will be fine. Yeah. Now, I'm not <laughs> even just talking about bass. I'm just talking about music, period. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? And anytime I see any, like, kid playing an instrument, even in my own personal circle, when I see, you know, my friend's kids getting instruments, I'm yeah. like, I love it. I got a coworker. He um, shows me videos of his son. He bought, I don't know, nine, eight playing guitar. And like he's really talented, Man, and I, I tell him, I say, keep him like you yes. know, you know how when you see a kid starting off, you like, yep, yeah, that's how you, his son you know. Is guitar, yeah. And it's like, um, I was just in the thought that I just lost, um, oh, and you know, you know me, mm-hmm. I know you're not the gift giver when it's birthdays, Christmas, whatever. I got a lot of gifts. <laughs> Anybody in my immediate like family, friends, acquaintances. Their first gift from me to their child is going to be instrument, instrument, some type of instrument. And um, that kind of, you never know what that will spark in a child. So I just, I love stories like this. Um, But anywho, all right. So back to the bassoon, we going to, I'm going to get into how he ended up playing bassoon because it's an interesting story. Okay. So this was like during the Vietnam war that he was a teenager. So at 18, even though he was like still not, I don't even think he had graduated yet, but he had got his draft notice because he was of age to go into the military. So he said he was so scared of going, getting deployed to Vietnam. Mm. I mean, you know, because just because you got drafted don't necessarily mean you're going to be deployed. You could be, you know, do anything in the military, right? Right. So he was scared of being deployed to Vietnam. So he went to, he did his little research of like different army jobs. He went to his high school band teacher and he, he was like, look, I got to learn an instrument that I can play in the army band. Okay. <laughs> so his teacher learned, loaned him a bassoon cause they needed a bassoonist. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he went through the book real quick. He learned the fingering. Cause I mean, he already has his yeah, musical foundation. To, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was like, you know, he, at first he was, he sounded pretty terrible, but he played well enough to be a bassoonist in the United States army. Right. <laughs> So he was like, it was only a couple, like it was maybe three army bands and bassoonists were rare. They might've only had one per band. So he was like, his legal army job was a bassoonist in the United States army. Wow. And he was like, he did not want to play bass. He said, because basses came a dime a dozen and they still had to go dig ditches and do whatever else. So he was like, his safe job (laughs) was to be a bassoonist. And he enlisted for three years. Thinking outside the box. I was like, that was clever. Yeah. You know? Very. So that's how he ended up on Bassoon. Wow. Yeah. And then um when he was overseas, <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. like right after he got out the military, he was actually he started an organ trio and he was on organ. Oh wow. And he was like, that's really where he kind of crafted a lot of his bass lines, you know, because of course you got your left hand, but you got pedals. Pedals. So, you know, that was a good little period of music for him too he was just like doing everything (laughs) (laughs) all right so um we gonna fast forward a little bit because we know a big chunk of his career was with herbie hancock yeah and i just got done with herbie's book and it took me a long time to get through that book because it was just so heavy it was (laughs) he was saying so many things and i just had to process and i'm like herbie you are deep man and he just herbie hancock we know he's he's played with a lot of our favorite bass players. Yes. You know? Yes, yeah. And one thing Herbie gonna do is keep a cold basses. Like, period. <laughs> so, in 1973, he linked up with Herbie when Herbie <coughs> ditched his Mondishi band. And we know, like, with Herbie, Mondishi, they have some heavy music. Yeah. And, he, you know, um, Herbie was a Buddhist. And so when he was describing, like, how they approach music in such a heavy way that is beyond anything that I can do. <laughs> um, and the, I w- I'm just fascinated in that whole, like, um, metaphysical approach to music, you know. And yeah. I feel like that's what gets you to that place. You know, that you can even transcend music and just step into it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, that's the caliber of music that Herbie was dealing with up until that time, right? But Herbie was like, I don't want to be heavy anymore. 
he was like funk was coming in and he just really wanted a new sound okay so and i know this ain't about <clears throat> herbie but to set this up right, you gotta right, talk right, about right, it right, right. um he was like you know because he's a buddhist and he was chanting and he was like he was chanting for hours and he saw a vision of himself playing with sly stone and he was like okay like i don't play funk i don't even know how to play funk but then he was like the the roles kind of switched and then sly stone was playing in his band like herbie saw himself with the funk band of his own Ah. and sly stone was playing with him and he was like kind of disturbed him a little bit because he was like i don't do this you know but he saw it so he was like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna start a funk band and so um he set out to you know in the the um guys i was playing with him and wandishi like buster williams he's still playing upright he ain't playing like no funk bass on upright so he set out to like find a whole new band because he was like you know they still kind of wanted to make the music they were making all right so he um started his funk band what he thought was just going to be pure funk at the time and so of course it was herbie and then paul on bass harvey mason on drums Bill Summers on percussion and um, Bernie on sax, Bernie Moppin on sax. And so Herbie said he hired Paul for his band because he knew that Paul was at that time, you know, he had switched to electric bass Mm -hmm. and that he was a funk bassist. So that's why he hired Paul. He was like, I thought I was getting a funk bassist, but it turns out I was getting a jazz bassist because he was (laughs) like, you know, Paul could improvise with the best of them. Like one minute he playing funk, next minute he's just off doing something Mm -hmm. like jazz. And so he was like, okay, but this could work to our advantage, right? And so he was. They got their band together, and they had performed for a minute without a name. It was just basically Herbie and them. <laughs> like, Herbie and them. Come know, on, live. Um, <laughs> you know. So he was like, once again, he was chanting, and so he was like, he went in with the intention of coming up with a name for his band. Okay. And so because of his former like themes with Mondishi, it was like African jungle related stuff yep. like that. He wanted a name that was, you know, still kind of on the same theme. He knew it had to be a jungle theme. And he was like, I want an intellectual theme also because Herbie was just deep. And then he was (laughs) like, he also wanted a sexual theme. He wanted like a triple entendre. So he came up with Headhunters. He was like, it was a three in one. And it just came to him. So that name was birthed out of him just sitting down and chanting like, okay, that's what I want. That's what's up. I mean, that's I mean, Headhunters is was is the first. You know, that's how I heard of Paul Jackson. Yeah, same. You know what I'm saying? And so, I don't know what brought me to Headhunters. Probably following something Herbie did, and then listening to Headhunters, and then then I was like, "Who's on bass? Who's this bass player? Who is this funky bass oh, player?" Goodness. Right? Because I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And okay, y'all, I'm a I'm I'm younger. All right, so. You know what my first exposure to Herbie Hancock was that where I knew and aware I was aware of who he was? Well, Sesame Street. Oh, when okay. he did the demonstration, it was like a new synthesizer that came out with the I, light. I've pen. seen that, yeah. And yeah. I was a kid when that came on. Mm-hmm. And I think that kinda what that episode sparked in me like my brief it wasn't Who's brief. Herbie? Who was this guy? Herbie, but it was it also sparked like a long running like kinda obsession with synthesizers uh okay okay yeah so like i would go to the library and just search <laughs> out books about synthesizer i didn't what? i didn't understand what i was reading wow. but i would look at the pictures and be like oh this is cool like i knew that computers made music so i mean like that was my first exposure to herbie hancock okay and then it was okay. on and popping ever since wow i didn't know that yeah that's crazy thinking about you being at the library looking at keyboards right and i don't i didn't like don't get it twisted i didn't know what i was reading i'm looking at pictures, just looking like, at pictures keyboard. yeah man janine what you want to do i'm thinking about a chord right 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 like I, I ain't know no names back Rolling? then I was just, that didn't come to like when i was about 10 when i really you know okay just okay just rolling 808 you know yeah. all right so um let me go back to uh paul yeah so mm-hmm. <laughs> all right so um we know that first the headhunters album so chameleon yeah mm-hmm. 
great. So most people think that, well, some people believe that, you know, Paul played bass on that, even though it was synth bass. Mm-hmm. But Paul did play bass on that. He played the synth bass no, on No, 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 no. Herbie oh, played oh. synth. And then Paul, yeah, because I know it was a lot of bass on that. No, let me let me tell you. What? Yeah, let me tell you. All right, and this was in Herbie's book. Herbie okay. explained this in his book. Okay. All right, so on Chameleon, Herbie played the bass line on the synthesizer. He did not like the part, so he reprogrammed his mini Moog and he re-recorded the part. But when he sent it to the uh, to be mixed, the engineer mistakenly left both bass lines in it, and it was kind of uh, off because you had okay. you know you had two separate bass lines. But Herbie kind of liked the way it sounded, so they put one bass part on the left, one bass part on the right, and they weren't super synced, but it was close as they could get them, and they left it. But Paul was playing the rhythm parts on the upper register of his bass. So the rhythm guitar quotes that you hear in Chameleon, That's that was Paul, Paul Jackson. Paul playing the bass. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. And so um, let's get into his bass a little bit. You know about Geraldine? Uh-uh. All right. So this is um, his bass that he had custom built. Who, um, who made it? I'm, we, I'm about to tell you the whole okay. story. All right. All right. So Geraldine is the bass that you hear on the head, the first Headhunters album, and a lot of subsequent albums after that. Okay. Um, yeah, because he has a uh, he has a distinct sound. Yeah, and the, there's a reason why he has a distinct sound. Okay. okay. Um. All right. So he wanted an electric bass that was as close to an upright bass as he could make it. Paul okay. knew the sound he wanted. He knew every like detail he wanted out of an electric bass. Okay. And he didn't use pedals because he said he wanted his bass to sound how he wanted it to sound and without, without any help. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I feel him on that because I'm kind of like. Yeah, know, like a, he was a uh, purist. Like, I don't yeah. need all them gadgets and gadgets. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, Geraldine, it was, um, it started out as a vintage Fender Telecaster, right? The year is kind of undetermined, but it's like between 50s and 60s, right? So, he took it to Stars Guitars. And um, it was a Japanese luthier that worked on it. And his name is Hideo Kiyamato. And he, all right, so it had a psychedelic like finish on it. And that's why they believe it was from the 60s. Because it was like a psychedelic bass okay. in the finish, right? So he had him totally strip the bass. And it like it just has a regular like wood finish now. Looks like a regular old bass. <laughs> all right, so... He met Paul Jackson, met Bartolini in his early stage when he was just starting out and he was making high A pickups, right? And Paul Jackson was kind of kicked with Bartolini and he was like, "Um, yeah, I need some pickups for my bass. But he had like a different vision of what he wanted for his pickups. He wanted to try a different sound. So Bartolini made three pickups, but he shielded and isolated the wiring so that the three pickups were all in one. And that became the first four-channel pickup. Oh, and wow. so Geraldine was the first, because it actually had five channels because he had an extra pickup. So oh, Geraldine wow. was the first five-channel bass because, well, like I just say, he put that extra um, mono high octave pickup in it. And so when they had to record the first Headhun- Headhunters album, the engineer took each string's output and mixed them to center to create the unique sound that we hear on that wow. album. So that was that was believed to be the first bass wow. to be recorded like that. That's sweet. But the fact that he got like a custom Bartolini on his bass. And his pickups look crazy. I'm I like I'll yeah, I'll put a picture it. in, but like the pickups look crazy. You could tell <laughs> it was like raw early stages of Bartolini. <laughs> like, wow. But yeah, and that great bass players thinking outside the box. Yeah. And um Wow. Yeah, Geraldine, the legend goes that Marcus Miller tried to like after Paul passed, like, like, can you slide Geraldine over to me? But they got Geraldine under lock and key somewhere. Like, Dang. yeah. Yeah, don't lose it like they did Jameson bass. But that was, that Geraldine was his pride and joy. Man. He loved it. And then when you think, like, when you listen to Chameleon, when you listen to Watermelon Man, mm-hmm. like, it, it just had a, such a unique sound. Yeah, it did. It did. It did. And then I did want to point out, too, and I'm going to go back just slightly. Um, because I thought this was was cool too. Um, he was very good friends 
with the Montgomery brothers, Monk, West, Buddy. Okay. And what I did not know that um, Monk Montgomery, he was the first electric bass to be recorded on a jazz record in 1953 with Art Farmer. Oh, I never know. Yep. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah, so these were the cats that he grew up around. So he was just always around great musicians. Wow. And they was just buddies. Like, okay. you know, they they ain't know. Right. They ain't know. Yeah. So, um, Paul didn't like to play on the one. And we know that. Yeah, we, we know we that. We're going to get into his time in a little bit. He And he said he always purposely played behind the one. And he played behind the one because he said, like, the bass drum would be a part of his bass line. So, he'll yeah. just let the bass line pick up the one and then he comes in. But he kind of credited his love of mathematics and quantum fi- quantum physics for his ability to understand music and play in the timing that he did. Wow. Um, so not only is he learning playing bass, but he's doing math while he's playing bass. Oh, this man was brilliant. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he was his thing was like time displacement. And he said time displacement is to play in such a way to get the most emotional content out of whatever you play. And when he said that, he realized it was heavy. So he was like, hold on, I got to run that back. <laughs> so he <laughs> said it again. And when I sat and thought about it, because he was like, he loved, like, he loved to pour into, like, younger musicians. Mm-hmm. And he was like, the thing about younger musicians, he was like, yeah, you know, of course, when they play for you, they want to show you all their chops. So he's like, I'll let them get their chops out the way and be like, that was fantastic. And he was like, but make me emotionally connect to your music. Like, he was big on yeah. the emotional connection and attachment to music. So, um, it's like, um, one of the songs that kind of jumped, jumped to me, um, Watch Your Back from the Headhunters. When you listen to that and how simple the bass line is, but like, like what you said, like you could feel like, you could tell that he he didn't make his baseline to go with the song. You could tell what he's playing is because of the feel of the song. Yeah, you know, it's like it, it rides with the vocals and everything. It's like it's sweet. So I understand what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And he was just so funky, man. Like. He, that man could hold a groove like nobody's business, yeah. man. And then the thing, kind of like you said, like he plays for the song, like but he could just switch it up on the fly. Man, one thing, one of the things that I've always learned, um, you know, listening to Paul Jackson, especially with the Headhunters, is that um, he would take the simple bass line, repeat it through the whole song, but like you said, like when he add his feel to it. It's like the funkiest thing you hear for however long that song goes. Man. Yeah. And I know, like, Herbie was saying, like, when he kind of made the switch to funk, and he was like, ended up being funk jazz anyway, which yeah. was something he did not want to do. Yeah. He just wanted a pure funk, funk. band. But Herbie, you know you can't stray away from jazz. That's that's in your core. That's right. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> Herbie could try to play country, and it's gonna sound gonna, like jazz. He's gonna play jazz chords all day. So well, Herbie, what you thought? And then, and then, I mean, like Harvey Mason on drums. You know, y'all just had a, a for Man. real low key jazz band. Y'all just put yeah. some stank on it a little bit. That's that's <laughs> all they did. That's all they did. They but, put the stank on the jazz. And he said that like the record labels and even at the critics, they was like funk. Like what? And he said they didn't even respond well to Chameleon. And, you know, Watermelon Man, he had recorded that song, like, years ago. And they decided to put a new spin on it. And he was like, the you know, people weren't feeling it then. But it was the the fans and the, you know, the people that was coming out to the shows that was really feeling it. Then they changed their tune, like, oh, this is so great, you know. And I just go show you regular, they don't be knowing nothing, right? I mean, I think about like the music I listen to, and I think about half of those like songs that people have never heard of. I would have never heard of if I wasn't seeking out for the bass player. True, very, <laughs> that's very true. Most of the music I I listen to, new, undiscovered, is because I'm seeking out bass players or drummers. And the first question we gonna ask is, who's, who's playing bass? Who's playing, who's playing bass? bass? Hey, babe, I got this new song. Who Whenever, on bass? Who on bass? 
And yeah. best believe we about to go look it up. Yeah. <laughs> and then that starts a whole nother rabbit hole because then oh, you got to see what else they played on. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, like, that's right. yeah, that's that's the process. <laughs> so he went on and he um, played 11 albums with Herbie. Um, not even just with the Headhunters, but just with Herbie Hancock. Right. And he played on Thrust, Man Child, VSOP, I love that album, and Mr. Hands, just to name a few. Um, and then he played on five Headhunter Headhunters album, including Headhunters, of course, mm-hmm. Survival of the Fittest and Evolution Revolution. And that that, that was just some great music. Man, I'm trying to tell you. I like, wish I was I could alive. Put on, like, I, could, I could put on a Headhunters CD, well, I sound old because I say CD, but that's what I was listening to him on. But where, I will put. You? Okay, I guess it was. What? Okay, CDs, yeah. yeah. Okay. What you? I'm about to say vinyl. <laughs> no, at the time when it was on vinyl, I was a little too young to be buying. My mom was playing Sister Sledge and Bob Marley on the record. Player. Right. <laughs> By the time I got to Hair Hunters, I was buying it on CDs. But you weren't I, buying it on cassette? Because nah, it was had, 80s, like I, early I was, 80s. I CDs. said by the time, oh, by the time I got yeah, okay, by the okay, time okay. I got to Headhunters, I had it on CD, mm-hmm. and I would just put it in and I would just play it all the way through. I would never ain't no skips, no skips all the way through. And, and that's it, what I love like, a no skip album. And this and and, and, and okay. okay, let me get this right. So loving the bass player Paul Jackson, it's like when you listen to the Headhunters, even when you come across a song you don't like, you're going to like the bass line, so you're going to listen to it anyway before you skip it. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Just because I let this album go all the way through don't mean <laughs> I like every song, yeah. but I like every song that Paul's playing on. Yeah. You know, so I could listen. He could be playing the bass to the ABCs. I'm going to listen to it because it's Paul Jackson. Basically. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. And then he did, um, he had his, like he did record his own albums and some of these I'm a fan of. And we kind of talk about this. Like when you have a musician or a bass player that's played with artists for so long and <laughs> have to play their music and then they get a chance to break out and do what they really want to do. Sometimes you'd be like, yes. And then sometimes you'd be like, no. Oh, that's what was really in your head <laughs> to play the whole time. And it's so different than from what you know them for but paul <laughs> for the most part he stayed on par to what we kind of yeah. expected from him and then um he had the um what was the black octopus the funk stops here with mike clark i'm a fan now, of anything with mike clark th- th- that's what i'm like <laughs> i am a fan of anything he yeah. did with mike but then clark. again is that really considered his own but it is because, because it was, it's collab yeah it was like the, yeah. a joint album yeah but that's that was like Man. not too far from headhunters now that's a whole album that yeah. i could listen yeah. to straight through yeah. for real yeah now on his stuff like on that groove or die i mean i like groove i like everything you said you didn't care for tiptoe too much the tiptoe, tip-toe through, the through the ghetto but the bass whatever he's playing on there like that's one of those all right so you know how i talk about how you like a song just because the bass yeah or you like a song because of good music that song I just like just strictly because of the bass. Yeah, I mean, I feel it, I feel it. Yeah. But um, another album he has, Funk on the Stick. There's yeah. one song that I love on there, and that's Which Hawk. Um, oh, okay, yeah, I yeah, love yeah, that song. Yeah, yeah. Hawk is sweet. But yeah, he has some pretty solid projects on his own. You yeah, know? he did. And um, he played with a host of other people. Like he played on a lot of other albums. He even played on some Pointer Sisters, um, Santana, Sonny Rollins, Eddie Henderson. Um, but he did since 1985, he lived in Japan. Wow. He's like, he ain't coming back here. So, and he, <laughs> he just loved everything about Japanese. Is he married kids Yep, or he did. He was married. He was, um, with his wife up until the point he passed. Um, he did have a son that unfortunately passed away in the year 2000 wow. from cancer. Mm. Um, but he just absolutely loved Japanese culture and he, the main thing he, wanted to stay in Japan for was their love of music music. and appreciation. And and when he started out in his early days, he was like, he would go to Japan and they would know who did what on everything. Kind of like how we always wanted to know who who did, even down to who was the janitor at the (laughs) studio. I want to (laughs) know. Like that's how they are as a culture. And he was like, he just loved everything about it. So he stayed there. Wow. Okay. (laughs) 
That's and cool. um, he became very involved in the music scene in Japan. He was still gigging over there. He was writing scores for TV and film. Wow. He had um, he was doing a lot of like um, work, educational work. He had jazz for kids over there. Wow. He was very, very beloved. I bet they got some Japanese jingles with him tearing oh, that yeah. bass up. He was beloved in Japan. Wow. He got the key to the city where he lived and oh, everything. Wow. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. But unfortunately, we did lose him on March mm. 18th in uh, 2021 in Tokyo. Wow. And he passed away from uh, complications from diabetes. Okay. Uh, but even up until like his last days, he was still spreading his love for bass, music. And it was just, he was a beautiful human being. And he was a great storyteller. And um, a lot of the stories um, that I heard from, like, his early days in Oakland, like, he has some stories. And um, he just lived an amazing life. And he, he was just so blessed to experience so many different things from the time he was a kid. And he did credit his dad for a lot. Okay. You know, That's cool. For um, a lot of his childhood and all the different things that he got to see growing up. Now, when you when you started it off, and you said Paul Jackson Jr. I didn't know he was a junior because the only Paul Jackson Jr. I knew was the, the guitar guitarist. player. Yeah, he's a junior also. So that's yeah. cool. That's and cool. I think maybe that's why, I don't know, because, you know, most people just know him as Paul Jackson. Yeah. You know, he left the junior off, but he was a junior. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. So for other, hey, I just wanted to put that out there for, you know, researchers like me. You know, you're looking for Paul Jackson, you see Paul Jackson Jr., and Nine times out of ten on the internet, yeah. Paul Jackson Jr. is going to be the guitarist. Yeah, you really have well, see, to say Paul Jackson basses. Like, it popped up for me, and I didn't look at the picture. Okay, so I just seen a black guy, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. And then I started, wait a minute, like this is a, this is a guitar. Yeah, no. And then, yeah. You really got to be careful because they do not like two black guys, Paul Jackson. All right, this is the data. Right. <laughs> right. He looks different, but he plays both. He plays guitar and bass. Okay. I mean, he did. He played a plethora of instruments. Yeah, like he was just—he yeah. has such a musical knowledge in a deeper way, and um, that's why I think him and Herbie were a good fit because mm-hmm. they understood music at that level. That's cool. Yeah, and that is just gonna go ahead and wrap it up for Mr. Paul Jackson. Paul on Jackson bass. on May bass. your soul rest in eternal peace. Yes, yes, rest in peace, and thank you for all the the funk and the the music. And I guess, hey, we could explore and see what we could find over in Japan with him playing on there. Man, and something to do. That's you know a whole what I'm saying? Another rabbit hole, yes. Yep, okay. All right, then. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. Hey, I'll be looking forward to hearing your bios because you always, even like bases that I know stuff about, you you always pull something out that I ain't know about. I'm glad I could be of service. Yeah, yeah very. <laughs> I didn't know about Jardine. And then um, I didn't know that we had two Paul Jackson Juniors. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, what's next? What All right. Doing? So look, we got a few minutes for some segments here. Okay. Um, let's get into past light cover. All right. So for 2023, what was it? Our, our gig studio gift we used to pull. We we changing that for 2023, and it's called Past Light Can Cover. We picked three songs. Out of the three songs, you're gonna pass a song. Out of you're gonna like a song, and then the you know song that you would like to cover. So for this episode 24, we have number one, Scissor Kill Bill. We have Butcher who? Brown, Scissor. Oh, I'm like, who is Scissor? <laughs> Scissor. <laughs> it just sounds like I said Scissor. No, I said Scissor. Kill Bill. I like that group. Um, you got Butcher Brown, Funkadelica. And simply rare, holding back the years. Oh, I want to play. I want to play. I want to play. All right, you want to play. play. Yes. What you want to play? So what you passing? What you like? And what you covering? Passing Kill Bill. You can have that. All right, I Um, passed on that too. Anyway, (laughs) um, and then I like Funkadelica because we love Butcher Brown over here. And then I absolutely want to cover with all of my whole heart, holding (laughs) back the years. I love that song. That song is yeah. like it, it's in a special place yeah, in my heart. It is. Love for me it so too. much. For me too. Who played bass on that? Who's the original bass player? We looked this up and I forgot. Um, okay, the, the, I'm not about to Google it. Yeah, we had to check it. Yeah, but, but we did look it up and I forgot. I remembered uh, then I forgot. Yeah. But yeah, that's I love okay. that song so much. 
that's what's up. But I, we got the same answers. Oh, did we? Yeah. Okay. I passed on Bill. I like on Funkadelica, and I would love to cover Holding Back the Years. Man, that song, I could listen to that right now. I love yeah. that song The so mix on it alone much. is just smooth. All right, so our next um, segment we're um, pick out for this episode is No Synth Bass. Okay. And um, the song for No Synth Bass is What You Gonna Do For Me? Oh, yes. Shaka Khan. And one of the one of <laughs> one of the rules that we put on this one, we usually don't have rules for um, no synth bass, but it's like a a code oh, because we gosh. listen to this guy play with Shaka Khan so much, and he's like probably our both of our go tos. Here was the funny part when he when he chose the song, and I was just about to be like, I already know. Yep. And then too. he was like, You cannot do Goucher. <laughs> you, you can't because that's that's the cheat. That's the cheat code. code. That's you can't cheat code. pick Goucher. So that right. threw my pick out the window. So I had to pick somebody else. All right. So who you pick? I want to hear yours first. I had a hard time picking. I did it, but I want to hear yours. I first. had a hard time picking, and I tried not to go to. I got a bag of usuals, and I just my you bag. You have a bag of usuals. My bag of usuals. I just like to hear them play, and I don't know. Like when I think of bass players playing stuff with synth bass, like my bag of I'm usuals. I'm gonna need you to get outside your bag of usuals. Okay, I'm trying to. But yeah, I picked the bag of usual. I oh, picked good. one out of my bag. Let me guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. Please, it's not Rhonda Smith, is it? It's not Rhonda okay. Smith. Okay. <laughs> um, is it? It's not mono, is it? It's not mono. Then I don't know. All right. It's funny you said mono because in me trying to decide who I want to play on this bass, if I was the producer for the No Synth, I went down the rabbit hole on YouTube and looked at a couple covers, and mono has a cover. On this, mm-hmm. and he killed it. I've heard it on that three minute and thirty spot on there. Oh goodness! Yes, okay. And then I came across um, this is a guy named Ben Jones on bass. On he's playing. You all right? So you remember we was looking at the guitar that Justin was playing at Kiesel? Yeah, yeah. Well, this guy's playing on a six string Kiesel bass. And he's playing what you done for me? What you gonna, do, you for gonna do for me? What you gonna do for me? And he's killing it on that so i mean you know i just watched it that was cool i came across a um live version with Mel- melvin davis that's a cheat code too we no, can't choose don't, I'm, I'm, i didn't choose okay. it. i'm just i'm i'm naming out stuff to help me lead to what i okay i got okay. you okay and you know different bass players coming across it so melvin davis that was cool um i didn't know average white band did a cover of that me either yeah so average white band did a cover of that and i think his name is alan gory play bass he sings also part of the band, but it sounds pretty good. The vocals, I mean, the music sound like you I'm went to, to check that out. The music, it sounds like you went to a gig, you know, and average white band was there playing the live. Doesn't sound like Shaka Khan singing. Okay, gotcha. It sounds like an outside. Do it sound outdoor, like a wedding version? The music sound like an outdoor. You know how you go to the wedding yeah. and you got no, the cover not, band. It's not cover. It sounds like a cover band, but not necessarily. <laughs> Wedding, I got you. Maybe got like you. outdoor jazz festival or something. Okay, okay. And then um, I came across Darren Darren Ron. He's a saxophone player, and Wayman Tisdale is playing bass Aww. on that. Same, you know, same cover. Okay. All right. So, make a long story short, through all those, I still pulled one out of my bag, oh, and I had to go with my boy B Rose. Brandon. Yes. Whoa. He'd tear that song up. Okay. I did not expect that. Yeah. That's okay. who I went with. All right. Who you got? This was a no-brainer for me. After you said I couldn't do Goucher, mm. Nick West. Ah, she would, okay. She would demolish okay. that song. All right. Okay. Yeah, that was a no-brainer. All right. Cool. Well, oh, um, so the other um segment we have that we could do right quick is our custom bills. Yes. All right. So we're doing this This segment. was hard, Gene. This it was this part me. was hard. It was hard for me too. It was hard I didn't like too. it. <laughs> but I mean, all right. So we got this segment, a new segment for for this year. It's called our custom build, and I always talk about it. She don't talk about it as much, but she on board. But we would love to have our custom bases built. Okay, and so we're just going to take you on a on a journey of us having our custom 
spaces that we wish That's we could That's not to say build. I don't want a custom. I definitely no, want a custom. No, I didn't say oh, you didn't. Okay. I said you did. I just said you don't yeah, talk you about, talk about it. it a lot. Yeah, I talk about it a lot. That's why I said you're on board because you want one too, but you don't talk about it like I do. Anyway, so we're going to take you on a journey on our custom build, and maybe one day we'll be able to get them built for real. And we're going to take this in different steps. You know, we're not going to just throw build down your – Yeah, build up. Yeah. Whole, so we're going to start off with step one. And I guess with anything you getting built, you got to have somebody to but build isn't it. But is this the second step? Because didn't we already start our custom with our previous episode? No, I think we just – what did we – We had the – oh, it was a four or five string that we had to – Yeah. I think we just picked the strings on there. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I think I picked a five. And you yeah. picked a four. No, I think I did six. I want a six. Oh, it was a six. Yeah. I know I did a five. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't even remember doing We it. did. Okay. So this would be. You got to keep track, buddy. Yeah. The show segment. Yeah. I got to keep track. <laughs> I got to keep track. I got to keep my notes together. <laughs> but so this episode, we're just going to pick. We're going to tell each other who we want to build our custom build. And I'm going with you first. babe. <sighs> yes, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's it rough. was so hard because in my heart of hearts, I did want another custom Keith Roscoe. I love my bass. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a Roscoe. So <clears throat> then it was it was hard. Then I really, really wanted to take it to Michael, Tobias. Yeah, I was like, he only uh, do ten bases. Yeah, I know he do ten bases, but still, <laughs> this is our dream custom base. Right, right, right. right. So okay. he would be, I'll be one of the ten. <sighs> and then I thought about taking it to George Ferlinetto and give me a custom F base because I, I really enjoy an F base. Oh, but I'm gonna just have to go ahead and roll over and take it to Vinny and him. What? And give me a Federa. Wow. A custom for Dara. Wow. That was it was that. hard. It was hard to pick. I didn't expect that. Okay. Okay. So that's what I'm rolling with. Okay. Ah. Uh, so of course, same as you. I thought about Roscoe, especially because they got that Plek workstation. Yes. And all right, so I'm gonna be honest. Like I I still haven't decided yet. No, you have to decide. I will. No, I'm going to decide. Oh, okay. I'm just. I'm a. I'm a decide right live <laughs> on the moment. I got three choices. Oh gosh. Okay. I got three choices. Roscoe I'm was on one. Pins and needles. My other choice was J. Clef. Uh, I thought about J. Clef. Uh. And then my other choice, you know, May Base. Yes, Charmaine. <sighs> I know who you going with, but go ahead. Well. You don't have to go Roscoe because you have a Roscoe. Right. All right. So I really want to go Roscoe, but I feel like J. Clef or May Base could build more what I'm looking for because it's more of a custom build. And I don't think Roscoe have built what I'm trying to get done. <sighs> I think I'm going to go with J. Clef. Whoa. Okay. That's what's up. Something new, something different. And then if it turns out the way I want it to turn out, it'll be something that no one ever had. No, no, you know, most people, I, I just got up on them. Yeah. So not too many people know about them. And Jeff, J. Clef Bass, he's a black luthier and he um, builds custom bases and we've kind of just been following him. Yeah, I'm following him on Instagram. Yeah. So shout out to J. Clef Bass. And I like May Bases. May Bass, man, Sean May Bases is just, he makes yeah, it beautiful. Yeah, he does. Beautiful, but I want to give J. Clef a chance because maybe in building bases, there's more people out there with Sean bases. Yeah. yeah, so I'm gonna try to give J. Clef because I, I think the couple people I've seen playing his bases are people he know yeah. too, you know, personally. But that's what I'm going with. That's what's up. All right, so we got a custom Fedora. Like everybody has a Fedora. Oh like God. I get it, but they build such quality yes. and beautiful bases yeah. and Vinny been in this game a long time so um we got yeah. a we got a Federa and we got a custom Ooh, uh, uh, J-Club base yeah. all right I want to see what yours gonna do yeah come on uh, Mega Millions Powerball so we can get <laughs> these bases built 
Man, well, yeah, I, I know. We don't even play the lottery. Look, look I know <laughs> you're going to be out a lot more money than I am. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Maybe after our, our youngest graduates and we, we're done paying three tuitions, maybe we could. Um, we yeah. could probably get us the a ten hours, six days. Keep Man. them coming, huh? Come on. All right. All right, so then. That is our time. Do you, unless you have anything else. Um, do I have anything else? I don't have anything else. That's it. All right. So we hope everyone's having a great new year. Everybody's off to a great start. And um, while you're here, please like, rate, subscribe, share, tell a friend, all that good stuff. Because that does help us out tremendously. Just write write base for the culture down on a sheet of paper and just start leaving it on people's desks. You know I was just going to say something <laughs> <laughs> and feel free to email us any feedback comments at baseforthaculture at gmail.com. All right. And All right. that's it. That's going to do it for us on this episode. And until next time, peace. peace.